Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, you're very welcome along to episode one, season three of the Group Chat Podcast. New year, same old us. I can't believe it. I'm news correspondent Sarah King. I'm joined in studio by political correspondent Gavin Riley. Hello, everyone. Hello, and my fellow news correspondent Richard Chambers. You right, Guys, we're back. Season three. Here we go. Three is a magic number. I think we'd last three seasons. (laughs) This week is actually a podcast birthday because it's literally this week last year when we had our chat outside that coffee shop being like, do you think we could, that we're allowed, now that we're allowed to be in each other's company again, Uh, are we allowed to do a podcast? Yeah, we are. Fantastic. Well, like, it's listen, while, I'm, I've missed here. it, actually. I've missed sitting around the table chatting to the to both of you, the three of you, I was going to say, the two of you. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Before we get too far into it, actually, we, we need to say thank you to the good folk at Apple Podcasts oh, because yeah. uh, in our first two series, uh, what their quality criterion is, who knows? Because they've got <laughs> awfully awful taste, obviously. Uh, but they included the group chat as one of their best new podcasts, uh, our top new podcast. Wow. There you go. That was good, uh, which is very nice. So uh, it's a lofty thing to live up to, but. Um, Let's hope we can. We, we Thanks, listeners, for that. Yeah. 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 But um, obviously, guys, one of the things we which was happening when we were away was the spike in protests we have seen uh, targeting refugees, targeting asylum seekers. Mm. So this is something we wanted to address. Where that is coming from, the rise of far-right groups in this country, misinformation, disinformation, as well as that, some of the other aspects of what's happening online at yeah. this moment. So we were lucky enough to be joined by Aoife Gallagher uh, of the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and the author of Web of Lies uh, to hear a little bit about some of the things which are driving that talk. Eva, thank you so much for joining us in studio. And we want to begin by talking about the rise of the far right in Ireland and the fact that, look, a lot of people might have said, we've seen a lot of rhetoric online, but we're now seeing this coming to the streets. Uh, was this entirely predictable? Um, I think in some ways it is quite predictable, to be honest, but I think it's also very important to note that this kind of activity has actually been going on for quite a number of years. Um, people re- might remember back in 2018 and 2019, there were protests against planned direct provision centres in towns like Uchtararat and Galway and Maville and Donegal. There was also an arson attack mm. on um, a planned centre there as well. So this kind of activity has been happening, right? Um, but what we're seeing is that it's changing in a number of ways. Um I think the frequency of the protests that we've seen recently is is, is definitely something to note. The other thing that is quite worrying is that the rhetoric that's been used to kind of rile people up is becoming more extreme. So if you think back to those protests, say the one in Uchtar Art in 2019, the way the far right were kind of infiltrating local communities there online specifically was that they were setting up Facebook groups, right? And they would set them up with a title like Uchtar Art against inhumane direct provision, right? So they were playing on the very real concerns that people have about how people were being treated in direct mm. provisions kind of pull people into these Facebook groups. They would then litter the Facebook groups with, you know, conspiracy theories about multiculturalism and, and different kind of things to kind of, you know, spur on this kind of anti-migrant sentiment. Now what we're seeing is, number one, 
that narrative about inhumane direct provision is gone. That is completely, you know, it seems that, that they, they don't even pretend to care about that anymore. That faux concern has disappeared. Exactly, yes. Um, obviously, the protests that are taking place now are taking place outside centres that are actually housing asylum seekers as well. There weren't people in those centres when this was happening in 2019. Mm. And the language that has been used to describe them is very deliberate. So they use words like invasion. They say that Ireland is, is that this is a new plantation, which is obviously playing on kind of past atrocities that have happened to Ireland. Um, they will say unvetted military age men to give this idea that, you know, there's some kind of a threat, that these people are a threat. So I think that, you know, as much as it's been happening for quite a long time, as I say, the, the, the kind of extreme end of it is becoming more and more apparent. Yeah, because this is something you often heard in politics for many years is that we don't have a far right problem in Ireland, mm. that we'd look at things like the UK and the US and say, well, thank God we don't have any of that here. Mm. Was there a naivety to that? Because let's talk about some of the, the main groups and some of the main sort of online entities which have organised these things. I mean, they, as you're saying, they didn't you know, spring out of the ground overnight. Absolutely not. I mean, they've, they've been here for years. And I do think that we have a bit of a tendency in this country to go, sure, we're not racist. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's a kind of, it's a dangerous kind of complacency. Do you know what I mean? We are as susceptible to the same kind of things that people are all over the world. Now, there is an, an element, I think, to, to kind of discuss here about the fact that they haven't had, a, and when I say they, I mean the far right, haven't had as much success here as they have had internationally. But that can change in the blink of an eye. And I think something like this, it could be the... I suppose the the kind of sparks for 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 them kind of gaining more of a foothold in society. Um, and the other thing that is very important to talk about here is the the effect that COVID had and the pandemic had on ask, how yeah. these. Yeah, exactly. So the way I try and describe this is that before the pandemic, you had all these movements that kind of, they lived on their own spaces online. So you had the kind of anti-vaccine movement, you had the far-right extremists, you had QAnon. There was a bit of an overlap, kind of imagine it like a Venn diagram. So slight overlaps in the way they they kind of, you know, communicated and stuff like that. But essentially the pandemic brought them all together. So when you go online now and you look at, say, telegram groups that were set up for anti-lockdown protests, they are wall-to-wall anti-asylum seeker stuff now. So they are being used to kind of like filter all this kind of, you know, broadly conspiratorial themes, I suppose. So with COVID, the common denominator there then? Um, COVID, I suppose, because a lot of those groups are bound by conspiratorial belief um, and they all kind of formed conspiratorial beliefs about COVID. Um, and it's more, I suppose it's, there's a psychological element. There's the fact that belief in one conspir- conspiracy theory kind of, pre- you know, you, you tend to believe in more than one if you believe in one already. Mm-hmm. And then, th- sorry, the other little mm-hmm. point is the way that algorithms work online as well. So people would have been kind of fed similar content, I suppose, across these different okay. communities that, as well. That might be ask, answering the question that I was about to ask, because what I was going to ask was, was it just a, a function of how much time people spent indoors and online over mm. the pandemic? Or, or how did the bubbles begin to merge? Like if you start off in an anti-immigration bubble, how does that then merge with other you know, anti-vaccine bubbles? How do they all then kind of conglomerate? Is it just because people were online and nothing better to do and they stumbled down rabbit holes? Or was there something about the algorithms that actually drove them together? Yeah, there's a bit of both going on, I think, right? Because obviously at the start of the pandemic, no one really had answers to what was going on. We were all stuck at home, you know, and we were looking to these spaces online. And conspiracy theories tend to give people very easy answers to very complicated situations, which the brain really, really likes, especially in times of crisis, right? So again, there's a kind of psychological element. The algorithmic element is also very, very real. Um, There was a study or a bit of research done by The Guardian, I think, in 2020. And what they did is they joined anti-lockdown groups on Facebook and their recommendations were then filled with QAnon groups, right? Mm. And that's because the same kind of things were being discussed across these groups. So Facebook doesn't know that these are, you know, 
essentially, you know, pathways to extremist movements. So, they so just, if you started yeah. up a brand new Facebook account and the first, the only thing you ever did was join a lockdown skepticism group yeah. that basically the machine then said, oh, you might be interested in all these other yeah. fringe theories mm, exactly. and you would be presented with it without ever going to hunt it out. Yes, pretty much. Yeah. Can, I, can I ask, it was reported in The Independent there the other day that, you know, the guards are looking into whether or not there are links between the international far-right mm-hmm. movement and the Irish far-right movement. That's like a real eureka moment there for for, for for officials who haven't seen this coming as a load of people have been pointing to it for many yeah. years. Yeah. But what is the link there? I mean, there was reports that there was meetings, I think the Irish Times reported there was meetings between, I think it was Patriotic Alternative, mm. which is a big UK one, with Irish activists. That must be somewhat worrying from your perspective when you look at what's actually been happening. Like worrying, but not surprising. Yeah. And I think that there's there's this idea that um, what's happening in Ireland is just like an Irish thing. And yeah. it's not, it's a completely international movement. Like a lot of this is coming from, um, yeah, groups like Patriotic Alternative in the, in the UK. The idea of like the Great Replacement Theory was kind of popularized by identitarian groups in Europe. Um, a lot of conspiratorial narratives around QAnon and stuff is obviously very US focused. So, you know, there's no borders in the internet. So they're always kind of... Um, borrowing language and tactics and, and different kind of strategies. They're always communicating across different groups, you know, internationally as well. So it's completely not surprising to me to see that there is that kind of communication going on because it has been going on for years. You mentioned that people are looking for easy answers to complex things. One person who offers some of those perceived answers is Andrew Tate, someone who's become much more prominent in public life in the last couple of months, particularly given his run-ins with criminal law. Uh, let's just, for the sake of, of illustration, uh, play our listeners and our viewers uh, an example of the sort of rhetoric that he has been exposing online. This is what's scariest about this entire agenda they're trying to purport, because their ideas, like the feminist idea and like the mainstream idea and like Logan Paul's ideas, all their ideals is if we weaken men, then if they become weak enough, they'll no longer be a threat. And I argue that point absolutely. I think the most dangerous men on earth are the weak men. I think inside of every single man, we're born with a fire inside of us that if we do not control, can destroy ourselves and other people. And if you look at men who have no emotional control, because that's what they're trying to teach us to have, they're saying, listen, you're a man, you're allowed to just cry all the time and have no emotional control, no stoicism, just be, come, react to your emotions. Do you know what happens when you tell men to just react to their emotions? Anger. You have school shootings, you have rape, you have violence. That's what happens when you tell men to have no emotional control. If how influential is somebody like Andrew Tate when it comes to young Irish men? I mean, is, is he actually having a huge impact? Um, yeah, I think so. And it kind of goes back to what I just said, like the internet has no borders. So if something like this is becoming really prominent in places like the UK and the US, it is more than likely becoming prominent here as well. Andrew Tate is, there's, there's so much to unpack in that. Andrew Tate is, I suppose, the way to describe him is that he is one kind of member or iteration of what is a wider online movement that is often termed the Manosphere, right? So the Manosphere is kind of a name that is given to a kind of loosely linked collection of websites and influencers and, you know, message boards and things like that, that all are linked by their fairly overt misogyny, right? Um, And this is something that's been kind of growing since the the kind of very early days of the internet. And it goes from things like pickup artistry, which, you know, Andrew Tate's kind of involved in as well, kind of gamifying ways to to kind of pick up women and things like Mm -hmm. that, to the very extreme end of uh, the spectrum would be like incels, right? The kind of involuntary celibates Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of, you know, some people would know about. Um, And Andrew Tate kind of takes a couple of different elements of this kind of manosphere rhetoric. The other thing about the manosphere is that they have very, they use language in a very specific way to both talk about men and women. Um, And again, very much like rooted in in kind of misogynism as well. Um, The manosphere was also one of the first movements to popularize the use of the term red pilling. Mm -hmm. Um, 
which is kind of used now to describe essentially people becoming radicalized into kind of right-wing mm. conspiratorial thought. But in the manosphere, it was used to describe an awakening to the idea that feminism was the root cause of all Can of I ask you though, is it just the manosphere that you talk about or is, is his reach much more mainstream than that? Because I'm going to be honest, thing. and we had a conversation in a meeting and the lads kind of scoffed because I was like, I hadn't heard of Andrew Tate before he got arrested. So yeah. I don't know, was that my algorithm or what happened? I mm. wasn't familiar with Andrew Tate and a lot of my friends weren't familiar with Andrew Tate and everyone on the meeting was shocked that I hadn't heard of him. Mm. I hadn't. Like, so I don't know, is his reach quite mainstream or is it is it locked in, as you call it, the manosphere? No, it's definitely become way more mainstream. And I'd be a bit the same as you. I mean, I hadn't heard of him until late last year. It was before mm. the arrest, but when, you know, when, he, when he was kicked off all the platforms and all that there. Um, and I think that he, again, people have done this in the past and he's just kind of the newest person that has been able to do this, but he's been really good at gaming algorithms in order to push his content and, and make it viral. And he does this in a very specific way, actually. Mm. Um, so he, people have heard he has set up a kind of academy called Hustlers University, mm. which is essentially a bit of a pyramid scheme. So members will join. They'll be said that they can learn how to become rich and get women and all the rest, but they have also been given commission to post Andrew Tate's videos online, right? Yeah. And they've been told to post the most controversial ones, the ones that will essentially get what we term like outrage bait. Do you know what I mean? So They will drive engagement. Exactly. Yeah. And that is why he went so viral because he had all of these people posting his videos on TikTok that were again being pushed into this for you algorithm um, and that were being targeted at young men. Can I ask about this? Because actually it's something I noticed on TikTok at some point there last year when I hadn't a clue who this was and I saw this sunglassed bald-headed fellow with a goatee beard. Mm. Um, and I was like, who is this? And I started seeing memes about him. Mm. But after clicking on and seeing the memes, I mean, then you start seeing the real stuff of his. Yeah. But anecdotally, and I'm sure you might have heard this as well, is that this is becoming something where teachers in schools in Ireland are having to have conversations with young boys about it mm. because it is that common now. How susceptible are young boys in particular to this? Because there is that machismo thing which Tate is sort of like trying to exemplify. But mm -hmm. it's something which 12, 13, 14-year-old boys they're naturally going to gravitate towards, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, I don't pretend to know like what, you know, the problems are to, with young boys and, and, and men, but I did ask a couple of colleagues about this, to be <laughs> honest. Um, and they kind of made the point that it's very easy to exploit a young man's or a, a boy's, um, I suppose, his view of sex and relationships. Yeah. So you can present this image that you can have loads of sex if you do all the things that I do. And that's very tempting, I'd say, to, to young men. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and then there's also, they kind of made the point that there's this kind of crisis of masculinity and a lot of young boys don't really know how they're meant to be a, a man. Do you know what I mean? So mm. there's kind of, there's a couple of different things going on there. And Andrew Tate wouldn't be successful if he wasn't tapping into those very, very real things. Um, so I think there needs to be maybe more of a conversation about how to answer those issues for young mm. men instead of having them being answered through this really, really horrendous, misogynistic kind of movements that are taking place online. I think that crisis of masculinity is a topic we'll definitely return to again. Mm. Ifa, thank you so mm. much for coming in and giving us your insight. We really appreciate it. No problem. You're very welcome back to the group chat. I just want to give a quick warning before we continue that the next item um, may contain some details that some people may find upsetting and some details um, of a sexual nature. So just to give you a heads up if you're listening and there's small ears around. Um, an article written in the Irish Times on Saturday by our uh, colleague and friend Jennifer Bray has outlined uh, the, in detail the abuse that female politicians have been enduring on a daily basis. And I just want to take you through um, 
some of the opening lines from that article by Jennifer Bray in which she says a bullet shell left at the back door, a long lens over the garden wall, a letter that says you have a nice little body with an extremely detailed description of the sexual acts the author wants to perform. A letter that says I have a picture of you stuck on my bedroom wall which is defiled. A voice note sent on WhatsApp that says I'm going to piss on you. Pictures of body parts, male, female, animals, online messages that say you are a bitch, a tramp, a whore, a nine year campaign of online abuse. And this is some of the detail outlined by the TDs who contributed to that article by Jennifer Bray in the Irish Times. Uh, Among those who contributed is the Social Democrats TD Holly Kearns, who joins us in studio now. Um, Holly, look, first of all, thank you for coming in. I know that this is the first time that you've spoken publicly about some of the abuse, frankly, that you have endured in your time as a politician. Um, Look, I want to begin by asking you, I suppose, to outline for us sort of what it is that you're dealing with on quite a regular basis. Yeah, and thanks for having me on. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Um, I suppose you think on the outside as well, it's important to highlight why. Yeah. One of the things I've observed over the last week or two in the kind of, there's been a lot of media coverage about the abuse that politicians are getting. And I think we've probably all noticed the fact that politicians don't really want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm one of those politicians. I've always um, avoided talking about it unless it was anonymously or... Um, and I think... There's a couple of reasons for that. And one of them is that there's the feeling that it's going to draw more abuse on the politician that does talk about it. And that does tend to happen. There's the really strong feeling that you don't want to deter more people from going into politics, particularly Mm -hmm. women, when I think we need so many more of them. Um, And there's also the knowledge that like we're talking about, for example, politicians not feeling safe in their home. And then there's the reality that some people don't have a home to not feel safe in. And there's this kind of what issues are you working on as a TD if you're out on this issue? Sometimes you can be kind of framed as not focusing on what you should be focusing on. And I think that's resulted, all of those things combined has resulted in a kind of collective silence around this issue. Mm -hmm. And actually, although it's not the most important issue in the country, it is a really important one. And when we don't really discuss it, I'm kind of wondering, has it just gotten to a point where we're waiting for something really bad to happen Mm -hmm. before we do? Like, you know, there's feces being thrown at a minister. There's, you know, we've already had a TD's car set on fire. So what exactly are we waiting for? And then we kind of look over to see what's happened in the UK. And I think actually, even though there is a reluctance and I feel a bit scared talking about it, it's something that we actually do have to talk about. So that's why I decided that actually I would love to come. And this actually seems like kind of a safe space. This podcast is great. And glad. Yeah. Um, yeah. maybe a good time to that we start talking well, about it. Thank you for, <laughs> for trusting us to, to, to go into some of it. Um, you've been a TD for almost three years. And before that, you were a member of your local county council for about four years. Um, how immediately after getting elected office did some of this abuse start kicking off? I think it was much lighter on the council. I would say there was a soft launch. Um, and it definitely amped up after the general election. And I suppose the correlation that I felt is the the more people know you, the more you get. So it's just kind of a numbers game, perhaps. And that's why it gets worse in national politics. Um, but it started off with, you know, I would get maybe online messages from anonymous accounts, then maybe more of them. And there's obviously the different variations of abuse that you get. And as journalists, I'm sure you actually know an awful lot about it as well. But there's the kind of the public commentary that you get that everybody can see. And then there's private messages, there's voice notes, there's letters, and then there's in person. Mm. And I think that was the scale that it went with for me over time as well. And I was perhaps a little bit obnoxious about it in the beginning. And I always thought people would say, God, I saw that abuse about you online. How mm. did you feel? And I'd be going, oh, it's like water over ducks back. thought I was so, I don't know what, above it. That sounds ridiculous, but that's genuinely how I felt. And it did 
get worse and worse and worse over time. And maybe I didn't realise how much it was building up. Mm. And it wasn't until um, I'd experienced it in person in terms of on the street and different things like that. But it wasn't until somebody um, who had started off with messages to my work phone then ended up turning up at the house on several occasions, wouldn't stop doing that, that it it changed everything for me. I felt then like every message I got was potentially somebody who could turn up to my house. And then I, it really changed how I behaved in every single thing I did then. Like you were frightened. Absolutely terrified. Like I'm from West Cork. I didn't have a lock for a door, even if I wanted to, if, you know, we didn't have mm-hmm. a key for the door. Um, I didn't have blinds. I didn't have any kind of security. And now I have CCTV, I have blinds, I have locks, I'm hyper aware. Um, so yeah, it became, and even like down to things like the guards have advised me that I can't have a constituency clinic, you know, your traditional one that you advertise in the paper. And then people come and meet you about their issues because I'm advertising where I am and that I'll be alone potentially. And it's like, it interferes with your job to the extent that you you can't do the same things as your constituency colleagues or your, you know, it kind of mm. impacts you every step of the mm. way. And then you also can't really say why it is that you don't do clinics. Um, so there's all of those different parts to it. But uh, for me, it for a while, it, it genuinely got to me so much. I took a big step back from doing any media, from doing anything like that, because I kind of had that feeling that I was drawing it on myself or, or something like that. But after a bit of time, there's kind of the realisation that like, it's really my job to highlight well, issues. Well, as a career and, politician, you yeah. know, if you step back from doing media and if you stop doing clinics, yeah. you may not get elected the next time because people don't see you and you're not present. So it's a huge part of your work and your job is to be out there. 100%. And that's mm. what I really realised. And and also there is that feeling of you, you don't want them to kind of win. And, yeah. to, and mm. even admitting that, I'm like, damn it, I don't want to admit that it did get to me. Um, and there's also, particularly, I think maybe when you're a female politician, the perception of being weak is something yeah. you don't yeah. want to put out there ever or, the you know, a victim. That's not the look I'm going for in politics. So that's why I think none of us want to talk about it. Um, but I think as women as well, it's very difficult. You don't really want to acknowledge that you're at some level of disadvantage to your male counterpart or colleague. And it's something that, you know, I would say I've come across that at times as well, where I've gone like, I don't want this to be an issue because of my gender. I don't want to have to deal with this because I'm a woman. And it's a really unfortunate. And so like that, you kind of ignore it and you push on and you think that actually if I just ignore it, it'll go away. And then as you say, the reality of it comes to your door and then you're faced with dealing with a bigger issue. Yeah. And you're actually just terrified. (laughs) Yeah. Just ask, how long did that, you know, you, you said that that started off with messages online and then this guy eventually started turning up at your house. Like how long was that transition or how long that campaign really mm. go on for Holly? I think altogether it was maybe over six months or more. Yeah. It's difficult to remember, even though it's not that long ago, but it started off with messages and then turning up to the house. And, you know, I started off by kind of trying to deal with it myself, like please leave the property and don't come back, being very stern and then there'd be like loads more messages into the work phone, like, I'm so sorry. You know, I really overstepped a line and thinking, okay, great. And was this and person then coming again. to talk to you about, I presume they weren't coming to talk about a constituency issue. This was not the, the motive for, for calling around. No, it was uh, much more kind of um, threatening than that, but mm. in a kind of, how do I explain it? Was it veiled as a romantic pursuit? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That this was so romantic, I'm turning up at your door mm-hmm. and I'm making this gesture and I'm declaring my feelings for you. Yeah. Okay. Um, And then like I contacted the guards and they were really like kind of encouraging me to make an official statement and then it would go to court and all of those things. But then of course, you know that that's a public trial. It's going to be followed Mm -hmm. by the media and like Mm -hmm. anything like that. It's like 
it's you that's on trial, <laughs> like mm-hmm. basically. And I just really didn't want to do that. And so, yeah, the guards were really helpful in that sense. And they did kind of speak to the person and they backed off again. But then they were back and it'd be like when I was up in Dublin, there'd be messages coming in saying I'm outside your house and Jeez. just all of this kind of stuff. It went on for a long time, but I can't actually remember exactly how long. One of the things when you talk to other women and politicians and other high profile women that they talk about is unsolicited pictures. Uh, and I mean, at the start of what you were reading out there, Zara, mm. stuff like, you know, dick pics and stuff like that is something which just happens really, really regularly. I mean, is that something which is part of your everyday experience or even that of your colleagues as well? I'm sure you, you, you've you all had like experiences like this where you're getting just bombarded with this invasion of stuff that you have no control over. Yeah. And weirder than that, actually, is I got um, images. Somebody was cutting out uh, uh, any porn that had the name Holly on it. And, Jeez, and um, but yeah, you get a, a bit of everything. But I think the worst is just when it comes to your door or like yeah. I've heard from other CDs of coming to your constituency office and like I wouldn't go into my constituency office on my own. Really, <laughs> As, Holly? No, I wouldn't. No, you wouldn't go to the constituency office by yourself. <laughs> Not with the door unlocked. Yeah. No. Wow. Um, this is possibly a tricky question mm. for you to answer because it's it's maybe a perspective you don't have because mm. I know you're the only female TD for all of Cork City and County mm. uh, and you're in a political party, the Sock Dems, where four of the six TDs are women. So maybe it's a perspective you don't have. How much worse do you think it is for female TDs above and beyond what it might be for your male colleagues? I mean, how much more intense do you think that the sort of attention that you get and some of the correspondence, if that isn't too formal a mm. word, that you get that is beyond, for example, what Keanu Callahan or Gary Gannon might get, male colleagues in your party? I think that all TDs get abuse. I think it's a, an across the board problem. I think it's just that the nature of it is very different mm. that, that women get. I think it's always, it's kind of gendered, maybe it's very sexualized. Mm. Um, but I'm, I don't actually know if women get more or not. So there'd have to be some kind of a survey carried out, but I think mm. it's quite clear that it happens to both men and women. It's a big problem amongst both. And I saw male TD speaking out in prime time about it. And there was the, a TD had the, his car set on fire. Yeah. You know, yeah. I guess I, I'm, I'm not actually sure is the truth. I think the thing about it as well, though, Holly, is like there is a, a clear difference between, you know, there's an understandable frustration. And we talk about that on the podcast every week um, amongst the public cost of living crisis and hospital waiting times. And so people have this frustration and they, and they want to take that frustration out on public representatives, which uh, rightly yep. or wrongly. But I think what you're talking about is so different to that because it's like what you mentioned there when we talked about this person um, veiling that sort of approach to you as a romantic gesture and that actually a lot of the stuff that comes to your door is not about policy or politics yeah, really. It's actually not really yeah. anything to do with cost of living crisis or being on a hospital waiting list. I mean, if you were dealing with those things, you would almost probably think, right, you know, let me tackle it or that's something yep. you can manage as a politician. Whereas this idea of this unwanted romantic advances from people is, ho- is wholeheartedly unacceptable. And that is the difference between, I think, what we're seeing yes. female TDs and male TDs experience. I mean, I don't know, maybe 100%. male TDs are having romantic approaches as well, but I mean, certainly it seems yeah. that this is the key mm. difference. Yeah, and I think it's actually great that there's a discussion now starting yeah. about this because I think there is different types of abuse that are that is levelled at us. And when we look at a lot of the abuse that we're getting, the, the politics in general is getting. Yeah. And it, it seems to me like, I don't know when before people would throw a bag of shit at a minister, essentially. Mm. Like something is changing in our society and we do have to look at why that is. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like there's a lot of people now who just feel like they have nothing to lose. And how at the end of your tether do you have to be to kind of feel like that? Mm. And I don't know, is it that the the discourse online is seeping into how we behave in day-to-day life? Or is it because 
poorer people are getting poorer. And I'm not saying that's ever an excuse for God. I don't mean that to go after a politician in that way at all. Mm. But we have to kind of look at what, like, what is the change in our society? And why is this happening? That people are behaving in a way that I don't think that they did before. And then separately, there is this looking at this kind of, you know, perceived as perhaps romantic advances Mm. or whatever it might be levelled at women. And I wonder is the, like, I would think, and that's why one of the reasons I never want to speak of it before was deterring women from going into politics because I think one of the things that will help it is if we have more diversity in politics. You know, the fact that there's kind of less women there, you maybe get more of it because you're kind of, Mm. you know, that's kind of what I wanted to ask because yeah. I think one thing about you that which is striking about it is that obviously you're a first time TD. Um, you've had a lot of high profile sort of successes in the doll issues that you've raised, whether that be animal rights, things of that nature. Do you feel that that's, there's an element of just trying to put you in your place as a woman, that they feel that you're a young female politician, they want to silence you, they want to stop you, that there's an element of that nature to what you are getting and, and the, the sort of the nature of the abuse that you're receiving? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, even like particularly on issues are around reproductive rights yep. or greyhound racing. Mm. They are two issues that draw a kind of other level of abuse, to be honest. Like I remember before uh, me and a, a counsellor, um, Elisa Donovan, organising an event yeah. in Limerick. And like in advance of that, I, it was around that time where I was actually kind of a bit overwhelmed with the level of abuse and getting, uh, I think we were getting emails that time saying that to watch my back at that meeting and people were going to turn up because of my stance on the funding for the greyhound racing industry and feeling like, would I cancel the meeting? Would I contact the guards? And it's like, then you're going into those kind of events, actually really scared. I got my cousins who live in Limerick and I asked them to come to the event and walk there with me and walk back with me Mm -hmm. to where I was staying because I was petrified. Um, And I think there certainly is an element of that, that it's when you speak on those issues that it's who do you think you are? Which then yeah. gets into kind of, kind of tricky territory because, of course, there still has to be some space where people who, you know, think that greyhound racing is a traditional passion and it ought to be something which is safeguarded by the state, albeit with the the controversial aspects of it, which we know your views are on. Yeah. But they, they would say, well, you know, there is a place in society for this and therefore there is a place in civil society for us to question you about your attempt to, to drive it out. And, yes. and there has to be some space where Absolutely. people feel like they can challenge public representatives for the positions they take. But of course, 100%. there has to be some limit somewhere along the way as well. Yeah. And if somebody had sent an email just saying, we're go- we're coming to the meeting and this is our interest and it's, we want to keep funding in the greyhound racing industry, that wouldn't have put the fear into me mm. at all. It was more the nature, yeah. the wording of it. Yeah. Um, yeah like I the watch your back is quite, the I mean, watch your back yeah. is, is quite Obviously intimidating. Yeah. It's designed yeah. to be intimidating. What, exactly. do, what do Gardy say to you, um, Holly, when you ask for that advice or what's, what's the recommendation to, to you when you ask for that help? Um, anytime I've contacted the Gardaí, I have to say I've found them exceptionally helpful and mm-hmm. kind of supportive. And I don't know if that's everyone's experience in terms of the other politicians. So what I'm asking is, I know there was a conversation about, you know, women being told to wear flat shoes, yes, for example. Yes, I was going to ask. Mm. Yeah. yeah, to make a quick getaway. They never said think? that to me, thankfully. Okay, good, <laughs> good. I'm like, I'm but, does that, that. but does that advice, because that advice was given then to, to people who are in the Oireachtas, mm-hmm. does that speak to some level of Asher be grand, it's only a bit of chat online and stuff like that. That there's almost a, a, an underplaying of the seriousness of it, that the advice is wear comfy shoes and just ignore it and it'll all go away. Yeah, I think that there there was an element of that. With that statement, it just didn't make any sense to anybody. I don't think wearing comfortable shoes isn't going to help at the end of the day. We all know that. It's a, it's a kind of a, maybe it speaks to the fact that we don't really know what the solution is. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of like, 
basic things that could be done in terms of like, I was warned before I went into politics about abuse, but I genuinely thought that people meant like the kind of abuse about your political stance on something Mm. that is part of democracy. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that people meant somebody turning up at your house or sending you that kind of stuff in the post. So even just down to like a basic thing for, for newly elected members to say, you might expect some of this, might be a good idea to get locks, it might be a good idea to get CCTV, might be a good idea to have blinds. Even things like that, I think I would have loved a heads up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's very basic and it doesn't solve the problem, but it's one thing that could be done and there's more. But unless we talk about what those things are, nothing's going to happen until, like I said, I think we're kind of just maybe waiting for something terrible to happen. Yeah. Well, I think like a lot of us, I suppose, the tragic death of or the murder of Joe Cox in the UK at the time, yeah. that, you know, that wasn't that far away. You know, mm-hmm. it was very close to home. But I think even around that time, I think people were sort of like, oh, well, aren't we grateful that Irish politics isn't quite that hostile? But that was a couple of years ago now, and things have really changed since then. And since then, there was David Ames, who yeah. was mm-hmm. uh, yeah. murdered doing a constituency clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was heard MPs in the UK now doing their clinics with stab vests on or whatever. So, mm. yeah, I mean, it's gotten to a stage where we need to do something about it. And I think even if if there wasn't this fear of talking about it that we all have, if there was kind of a bit more, even that we were putting out the fact that like, yeah, when we get these letters in the post, we give them to the guards. Mm-hmm. When we get these abusive messages online, we report them. Even if we were kind of saying like, <laughs> these are the things we're doing, would that not be a slight deterrent? I think that we need to kind of stop the not talking about it, even though I completely understand why we all feel like that. And yeah. like credit you to people like um, Jennifer Carr McNeil, who took a case yeah. and yeah. made yeah. a kind of public example of like, this isn't acceptable. And unfortunately, we should be spending our time working on other issues, but perhaps this needs to be given some mm. bit of time because who would want to go into politics? Uh, and has it made you consider whether or not you want to do this further on or has it given you a resolve that I'm not going to let this beat me? Or what, what's, what's the feeling? Because I mean, it has to have obviously given you some dates and some sort of feeling about is this really a career for me? Uh, I have to say it did briefly. I remember yeah. thinking I don't, when I genuinely didn't feel safe anywhere and then in my own home for a while, I did feel like that. But I certainly don't now. And right. just after a bit of time to maybe recover from it or understand mm. it a bit more, or reflect, I don't know what. Mm. Um, I do have that feeling that, you know, we need to do something about this, but absolutely will not let it mm. kind of knock me because, back any more than it already has. Because uh, I right. suppose people would wonder that if you knew then what you know now, a lot of people would wonder that why would you get into it? So what would be your advice to young women who might aspire to get into politics to follow in the likes of your footsteps, but who might be turned off by the sort of experiences that you're telling us about today? I think it's better to be completely honest with people. And I have to say, if I knew what I was getting myself into, no, I would not have done it. Am I glad I didn't know? A hundred percent. Because I don't regret it, you know, but honestly, if I had known, realistically, no, I, I probably wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't change it for the world, though. I'm very glad to be in my position. I feel very honoured to be and I absolutely want to continue. I'll be running again. Um, But I just think we need to see this change in order to get more people into politics. Like you said, I'm the only woman in Cork who's a TD representing the entire county. And I think there has to be, you know, just say even looking at the female aspect of it, when we do Q&As on the Instagram, getting messages in about being single, are you single, things like Mm -hmm. this. Like we just need to start calling it out and getting rid of it more and more and more in order to encourage more women to come in. I think my approach of trying to kind of be silent about it, pretend it isn't there, that's not working. (laughs) And, you know, we need to just kind of change that approach. And hopefully with a bit of awareness, it will have a positive impact on 
the whole situation that we're kind of talking about at the moment, yeah. but well, I don't know. We really appreciate you being so honest with yeah. us today, Holly, and coming in and speaking about it, because I know it's a really big deal for you to speak up about this today, but I actually think, you know, adding a voice to that and, and putting a face to that voice is a hugely important part of this debate. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I think there's a lot to unpack in the two interviews that we've done here uh, mm. today on this week's podcast. I think we're going to begin, obviously, with the conversation with Holly. Um, look, I suppose the key thing that you take away from the conversation with Holly is that, yes, politicians, you know, put themselves out there, they're voted and they're elected by the public and they, you know, they take on the frustrations of the public to some degree. But I think what is clear from the conversation with Holly is that the type of abuse that female politicians take it has a totally different yes. tone. Yeah. And it's, and it is this, it's interesting when I listened to her talk about the letter and the guy showing up at the door, it's almost like what we talk about how some rom-coms are kind of toxic now, this idea that like, you know, there's this perception mm. of the male pursuit and that this is really show, romantic. Show up at the door with your message the, on the yeah. A3 cards and tell yeah. them to yeah. singers and say that next yeah. time we'll be like this. Yeah. yeah, that there's almost an element of that, which is quite... Um, toxic and 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 dangerous yeah. in so many ways. I think there's actually a real common thread between the two interviews that we just had because we finished our chat with Aoife talking about a certain level of toxic masculinity. Mm. And one thing which, and you become very aware of this, that the more time you spend around TDs like we do, um, to a certain degree, when you get elected to public office, you kind of become public property. And there's a certain sense of people think that it's fair game then to target you at your home or to expose you to a level of vitriol that wouldn't be polite in any other circumstances because they think that to some degree they own you. But there's a real problem now where particularly if you're younger or female, that because you are public property and because you're female, that people then think that it's somehow legitimate to treat you almost as some sort of sexualized plaything yeah. mm. or that, that they have the full right to pursue you in a really, really inappropriate way because I pay your wages or because you got elected and therefore I don't I actually I'm actually I actually don't think it's as much to do with that in that it happens to women in high profile positions in media and everywhere else as well That's there's true. a concerted thing that high profile women are seen as objects and targets and it is as you say Gav it's linked into stuff we heard from from Eva Gallagher about you know Andrew Tate there's that entitlement thing mm. uh, which men in particular have always had but it is now at least being seen for what it is. Uh, and the internet has a huge role in that as well. So I would say that this is something which is a common thread. It is very discouraging to people who are trying to get into politics, but it would also be a discouraging thing, I think, for people who are trying to get into media 
or into other high profile yeah. mm. um, uh, positions as well. And it is, unfortunately, it is always women and people who are in minorities uh, who are always targeted to a much more unhealthier degree than men are. But it is that thing that Holly said about not wanting to talk about it because you nearly don't want to acknowledge that being a woman is is part of like is part of the issue, and that's really difficult. I think for women in those situations is that you never want to kind of publicly accept or or acknowledge that that's that's part of like mm. the issue, and like it's completely out of your control. It's your gender, you know what I mean? It's completely mm. out of your control. And she talks about that really clearly today and says that you know she won't go to her constituency office by herself. She's been told not to hold clinics. Yeah, that's shocking. Yeah, that like is shocking. That's part of the her, job. And the men in, in Cork, uh, you know, within the constituency are, are the likes of Thonishta, Micheál Martin, you know, this, you know, these people are able to have their clinics or have their, you know, not that I'm not sure Micheál Martin's holding that many clinics, is he? Well, Maybe, people probably but yeah, are but, but, I mean, you know granted, but I'm just saying they're not, they're not the same challenges Cork, and if she's the only one who can't do it yeah. then it's an issue and, and like and it is a real problem because we're, we're all trying to aspire to a world where uh, success and progression ought to be as easy for women as it is for men and it's so disheartening but also so important that we do highlight that actually for women in public life that they are already starting with that disadvantage where they're going to be uh, subject to such hostility far beyond what is either fair game or in truth far beyond what their male counterparts are going mm. to face. And it's so disparaging, but we have to face up to it. Yeah, it was interesting as well. Like it is high profile people who are trying to you know do their best in their position. Like Holly Kearns, whether you agree or disagree with what she says politically, mm. she has, you know, made a name for herself as someone who will speak out on issues, will not shrink away from having the discussion, from having the debate on things. And there is a concerted effort and it is such an obvious thing that so many men across our country and across the world, across our society, are just not happy seeing women take on high profile roles, leadership roles in our society. And there is a big effort to try and put a stop to that. And it is something which men need to confront and it's something that we all need to do and we all need to play our part in that because the worst thing that men can do is to sort of just wash it off. And there's that element of, even as Holly was sort of saying when she found that that, that advice that went around about, you know, comfortable shoes and ignore it. Mm. Mm. How dismissive can you get? You're not acknowledging that there's a problem. I think that men have a bigger role to play in this. Uh, we're nearly lucky, Zara, that we had you available to us today, given that you've only just managed to finish listening to the fairly epic audiobook version yeah. of, of Harry, Prince Harry's Spare. Yeah. Uh, you are one of the literally several million people who acquired a copy in one format in the opening couple of weeks. Uh, with this kind of remove, where you've had a, a week to kind of settle on it a bit, yeah. was it worth all the, the hype and hassle and all the hubbub about it all? Uh, yeah, listen, you know, it's a good read. I will say it's a good read. Um, the ghostwriter was very creative in, in, in the flowery writing and stuff. You know, there's some great descriptions. Writer, yeah, great ghostwriter, I have to say. I do think that some of the descriptions, like what I enjoyed about it was, we heard all the top lines and stuff out of it, but what yeah. I really enjoyed about it actually was the smaller details mm. and like the, you know, the descriptive um, writing around like going to stay in Balmoral Castle and being tucked into the crisp sheets and the blankets. I almost was feeling like I was staying in Balmoral. Mm. It was so descriptive and stuff. And I think those kind of small tidbits of information and insights into what it was like to be... Um, to grow up royal and to grow up in the royal family. I mean, I don't. nobody would want that life, to be honest, having read the book. I don't think I'd trade places with any of them. Mm. I think it's an incredibly uh, difficult way to grow up. Obviously, uh, quite privileged, but I would say quite difficult as well in a lot of ways. Um, I couldn't see there being a road back in terms of reconciliation with his family after this <laughs> like book, it, I'll it's be honest. It's really hard to imagine how simultaneously he can be like, right, here's, here's all my version of the dirty laundry. Yeah. And simultaneously be like, here, but I'm an open door if you guys want to be friends again. Yeah, yeah like, I don't buy 
quiet. Yeah. I, you, I find you it very both, You both have brothers. So like, you know, the brotherly fighting, obviously I'm an only child and I'm, I'm you know, perfect in every way so I don't fight with anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Jokes. yeah. But um, did, was the brotherly fighting, were you like, I, meh, I, like I it didn't think all the it time, was or? like headline worthy that I got a bit of scuffle with a brother. Like, I mean, I... Dog bowling his back, Gav. His necklace got torn. Yeah, well, no, no, I've never, never managed to shatter a dog bowl into my brother's. Not relatable, bowl. I would say, actually, Not from my perspective. Okay, yeah. So you think it was a bit beyond the. the no, standards well, yeah, there's definitely a hatred there. Yeah, a little, yeah. but like this whole thing of, oh, there was violence between two brothers. Like, that was a little overplayed because like, I think people who are writing those headlines. Don't have young I actually really enjoyed the petty details about them having Ikea furniture and Nottingham Cottage and like buying sofas from sofa.com on Megan's credit card. I loved those petty details. So if you like, I mean, look, I would say yeah, read, so the, read it if you like it. are actually where the value is then really. I totally well. think so. I think it's the small details are where the value is. Going to be honest, so I listened to it on Audible. I think it was about 15 hours. I definitely mm -hmm. fast forwarded a bit through the middle. It got a bit boring in part two in the middle. Then it got kind of good again towards the end. So yeah, yeah. listen, spare. It's a decent read. You know, right. it's it's definitely juicy. Group um, book club. Group chat book Club, we'll get it started. I'm actually doing Emily Matus's book because you recommended that yes, to me last year. Yes, Airhead is a very Airhead good Airhead is very, very yeah. good. And um, before we let you go, Richard, you will remember, was in the United States towards the end of last year. Uh, he came Yeehaw. live to us here on the wall behind us. The documentary is finally made. It's it been, is. It's been a journey, Richard. It's been, been a journey. journey. <laughs> a lot of hard hours in the lab. If I look like I've uh, not come out for actual natural light in a long time, that's probably because that is true. And I've been under the fluorescent bulbs here at Virgin Media Terrace for a very long time. Trump's last stand, uh, Tuesday, nine o'clock. Uh, on Virgin Media One. So basically, it's actually a lot of the issues that we covered in today's episode. Yeah. The conspiracy theory issue, the hostility towards migrants and women. Uh, and a lot of it just, it's, it's an intersection of all of that. So basically, it's a look at, as it says in the tin, Trump's last stand. He's now fighting for his life, whether or not he gets back into the White House or his career, like all political careers, ultimately ends in abject failure, uh, which is very hard to call at this point. So we speak to a couple of the people who put him where he is, you know, meet a few things, obstacles which are in his way and just look at the damage which he has caused and it has upended lives, it has ruined lives. Uh, so it was an absolute joy to work on with uh, Eamon and Dave who are our editors here and of course Owen Kelly mm. who was out on the road yeah. racking up those yards, those miles. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was absolutely, it was really, it was actually one of the most, um, one of the most enjoyable things I've probably ever worked on. Uh, so I hope people do enjoy it, actually. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see it. We, have, we must get together and watch it. No, we must. Yeah, night 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 night. Yeah, uh, next party. Tuesday night at nine o'clock, Virgin Media One. Hell yeah. Excellent. There you are. That's the first episode of season three done. Do you enjoy it? Yeah. It's like we're never away. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you again <laughs> next week, guys. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Everybody.